Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9, and reading again at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. I don't know if any of you ever watched uh, the TV series Educating Yorkshire. It was uh, broadcast, I think, in 2013, and uh, followed the staff and pupils at Thornhill Community Academy in Dewsbury. Uh, One of the standout episodes focused on a boy, Musharraf, and his teacher, Mr. Burton. Uh, Musharraf had been left with a severe stammer uh, following an asthma attack when he was five, and that stammer had impacted uh, not only on his education, but on his confidence. But inspired by the film The King's Speech, Mr. Burton got Musharraf to read out loud while listening to music on his headphones. What followed was incredible. Musharraf found himself able to read without stammering. Eventually, he passed his English oral exam and he now works as a motivational speaker. It's an amazing, uh, amazing thing that happened to this, this young boy. This morning we're continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10 and we're focusing on an even more remarkable event, a Jesus healing of a man who was unable to speak, a man who was completely mute. And we're looking at this under two headings, the restoration and then the reaction. First we have the restoration, look at verses 32 and 33. Here Matthew focuses on Jesus' restoration of a mute man. Matthew opens by giving us the context at the beginning of verse 32. We can begin by noting where Jesus has been. Uh, He had been teaching and healing in his hometown of Capernaum. And after deciding to pass on from there, he had been approached by two blind men who had cried out to him for mercy, for healing. He had proceeded to heal them with just a word and just a touch. And, And after healing them, he had told them to tell no one about this. However, the men had gone out and they had spread his fame through all the district. And now Matthew tells us that they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were going away. Uh, Jesus sees the need to press on with his mission and so he attempts to get away. He wants to leave this area, leave this home where he had healed uh, these two men. And having given us the context Matthew records the confrontation in the second half of verse 32. He tells us that a demon-oppressed man was brought to Jesus. We're not told anything really about this man. Matthew doesn't give us his name, doesn't give us his age, doesn't give us his family background. The only thing that Matthew tells us is that he was oppressed by demons, afflicted by demons, dark satanic powers, forces of evil. And as such, he has to be brought to Jesus. Uh, We've already seen in our studies that the demons know who Jesus is. They know that he is the Son of God. We have also seen in our studies that the demons know what Jesus has come to do. He has come to destroy them, to put an end to their work. And so this demon-oppressed man doesn't come willingly to Jesus. He has to be brought to him. Evidently, he has some friends who know that Jesus can transform and turn his life around, and so they bring their friend to Jesus. 
And Matthew also tells us that this demon oppression took the form of muteness. This man is unable to speak. There was once a time when he could participate in lively and engaging conversation with others, but he's now unable to speak. He doesn't have the ability to convey what he's thinking, the ability to convey what he's feeling. When I was a student, I used to work in a local care home over the summer months, and and while working there, it was often very painful to see men and women who were robbed of their speech through suffering from a stroke or Parkinson's. You could see the frustration on their faces. They, they knew what they wanted to say, but they couldn't get it out. And that is what we have here. Here is a man who is unable to speak, but he has some friends who bring him to Jesus. Having recorded the man's condition, Matthew records his cure in verse 33. Matthew tells us that the demon was cast out. He doesn't tell us what Jesus did, doesn't tell us what Jesus said. He simply says that the demon was cast out. It is a forceful expression. It is making it clear that this demon doesn't want to come out. This demon is perfectly at home in this poor man. But this demon is no match For Jesus, Jesus cast out the demon, and Matthew tells us that once the demon was cast out, the man began to speak. Here is the definitive proof, the decisive proof, that this man has been cured. A few moments ago, he was oppressed by demons, unable to speak, and now a few minutes later, the demon is cast out, and he's speaking. Now, as we see this event that is taking place, we can note the significance of the event, the significance of what is actually happening here. If you go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, 700 years previously, Isaiah had spoken about a day when the Lord would come. And on the day when the Lord would come, he would restore his creation. He would redeem his creation. He would renew his creation. And on that day, Isaiah said... The blind would see and the mute would shout for joy. Now look at what is going on in Matthew chapter 9. You've got two blind men seen. And you've got a mute man speaking. The Lord has come, just as Isaiah said 700 years earlier, and he has come in the person of Jesus. I often say to the young people, who is Jesus? He is God. And that is what's been made very clear here. Here he is the one who can open the eyes of the blind, the one who can open the mouths of the mute. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been given a picture of what we might call our default condition. In verse 32, we meet a man whom the devil is wielding a a very powerful influence over so that he is no longer able to speak. He is unable to praise the Lord in song unable to pray, petition the Lord in prayer, unable to proclaim the Lord in conversation. The devil and his demons have muted this man. The devil and his demons have shut the lips of this man. And that is the default condition that every single person is born with. 
David Goodin writes, It is God's desire and design and man's chief glory that man should be the priest of God's creation and articulate creation's response to the creator, that man should talk with God as a son with a father. And therefore, it is prime strategic importance to the enemy, the devil, to cripple man's ability to speak with God, to lock up man's spirit within himself, as far as God is concerned, to turn this earth into a silent planet. That is what the devil loves to do. He loves to silence people. The devil doesn't want our voices to be used to magnify the living God. He loves to see us spiritually mute. And until we are converted, until we are born again, until we are brought to spiritual life, our lips are closed. Now, they may say many things. But when it comes to glorifying the Lord, when it comes to worshipping the Lord, when it comes to blessing the name of the Lord, our lips are silent. They are shut. They are unable to open. But the Lord is able to untie such lips. He is able to unmute such silent lips. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a story that George Collins tells in his biography of uh, John McRae, also known as Big McRae. And and those of you from Carloway, I'm sure, will have heard stories of of Big McRae, the the minister who was there, also minister in Lost. But he was quite a wild man uh, before his conversion. Uh, His father had died and McRae became a sheep farmer in Loch Carran. And Collins writes... There was no trace of saving grace in John McRae, nor any prospect that he would yet turn from shepherding in his own interests to taking the oversight of Christ's flock as the servant of the Good Shepherd. He was an honest man, an industrious man, but his affections were set on nothing higher than the things of the earth. When he first attracted the attention of the godly men of his time, it was certainly not by any promise of a growing interest in the gospel, rather the reverse. The story has often been told how the Reverend Lachlan Mackenzie of Lochcarron and his friend the Reverend John Kennedy of Redcastle once heard him directing his sheepdogs in a voice that registered wrath of high temperature and in words that fell offensively on the ears of his godly auditors. What a powerful rough voice that young man has, exclaimed Mr. Kennedy. But Mr. Mackenzie was a bit of a seer. True, he replied. And I am well accustomed to that voice. But I seem to hear a meek and quiet voice behind those rugged sounds. I do not expect to see it, John, but you may live to see the time when your eyes and ears can testify that no one in his day can surpass that young man in proclaiming from the pulpit the grace of God in Christ Jesus to perishing sinners. And so it happened. And I'm sure if you asked a few people in Carloway today, they would still speak about John McRae, even though he's been gone 150 years. And you would hear people maybe from the seminary speaking about John McRae's ministry. And you would hear people from Crossfall speaking about his ministry. But before his conversion, his lips were silent. All he could do was shout at his sheepdogs. You might be here today or you might be listening online And you're suffering from that kind of spiritual muteness, where your lips have been silent when it comes to making much of the Lord. But friend, there is one who can dismantle the devil's influence. 
There is one who can open your lips, and, and his name is Jesus. So if, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, will you go to him and say to him, Open my lips. But as we consider these verses, we're also being given a picture of the dreadful condition that the Lord's people can also find themselves in. Verse 32, we meet a man whom the devil is wielding a powerful influence over. And because of this, he's unable to speak, unable to proclaim the Lord in conversation, unable to praise the Lord in song, unable to petition the Lord in prayer. The devil and his demons have bound his lips, muted his speech. And that is the dreadful condition that the Lord's people can find themselves in. The devil can wield such an influence over the life of a professing Christian that they no longer find themselves able to praise the Lord, able to proclaim the Lord, able to petition the Lord. We see that in the life of King David, don't we? King David in Psalm 51 falls into sin and he cries out, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. Here is the singer of the Psalms. Here is the songwriter of the Old Testament. Here is the man after God's own heart. And he's saying, Lord, I can't speak to you anymore. I can't speak about you anymore. And over the years I've met many Christian brothers and sisters who've got themselves into a similar backslidden rut where they find themselves unable to speak to the Lord, unable to speak about the Lord, unable to sing to the Lord, unable to sing about the Lord. Brothers in Christ who will not come to the prayer meeting because they say, I can no longer pray. Brothers and sisters in Christ who will no longer come out to church services because they think, I can no longer sing to the Lord in public. Brothers and sisters in Christ who, who no longer want to meet with the Lord's people because they feel that they have, they have nothing more to say. Perhaps that's your condition today. The devil has bound your lips. But there is one who can dismantle his influence. There is one who can open your lips and his name is Jesus. Friend, will you go to him and just say, open my lips again? Open my lips that I can once again pray. Open my lips that I can once again proclaim. Open my lips that I can once again praise. Well, we move from the restoration to the reaction in verses 33 to 34. And here Matthew focuses on the reactions to Jesus' restoration of this mute man. Verse 33, Matthew records the reaction of the crowd. He begins by drawing our attention to the crowd. Back in verses 29 to 31, we saw him healing the blind men in the privacy of a home. But here we find Jesus healing the mute man in the presence of a crowd. Matthew continues by telling us that the crowd marveled. They're astounded. They're amazed. They're awestruck. The word that Matthew uses indicates that they were literally super astonished. They don't greet this miracle with a polite round of applause. 
they don't greet this miracle with a, a nod of, well, that's, that's, that's very good, that's very interesting. No, there is excitement in the air. There is something tangible that you can sense. The crowd are amazed, they are astonished, they are marveling, and as they marvel at what's just taken place, they begin to murmur among themselves. Listen to what they say. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. They look back at the days of Moses and they exclaim, never was anything like this seen in Israel. They look back at the days of Elijah and they exclaim, never was anything like this seen in Israel. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is doing something unprecedented as he performs these miracles. He is surpassing their teachers. He is surpassing their rabbis. He is surpassing even the great men of faith from their history. Here is one greater than Moses. Here is one greater than Elijah. Here is one who has real authority. We move though from the reaction of the crowd to the reaction of the Pharisees. Look at verse 34. Matthew draws our attention to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, Pharisees, as we have said in our series, were the social and religious conservatives of Jesus' day. They were highly esteemed. They were highly thought of. They carried a lot of weight. They carried a lot of influence. And Matthew writes, but the Pharisees said. Now for the young people here and maybe for others too, I'm going to be geeky and give you a bit of a Greek lesson. The word said here is interesting. In the original Greek, it is in what is called the imperfect tense, which suggests that the Pharisees were saying the same thing over and over and over again. They don't say it once. They say it again. This is their settled point of view. This is, this is their settled position. They are saying this and saying this and saying this. And listen to what they say. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They can't deny what Jesus has done. They've seen it with their own eyes. The, the crowd have also seen it. There's no way that the Pharisees can say, well, this didn't really happen. But they decide to attribute what Jesus has just done to the prince of demons, to the devil. In Jesus' day, it was a commonly held belief that demons were subject to the authority of the God of heaven, but also the prince of demons. In order to wield authority over, over a demon, one had to invoke either the power of God or the power of Satan. And here you've got the Pharisees, these religious leaders, and they are repeatedly saying, they are saying it over and over again, that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. They, they refuse to see the power of God being manifest in what Jesus is doing. Instead, they claim, out, claim that Jesus is driving out demons with devil-given authority. They're blind to the reality of who he is. They're blind to the reality of what he's doing. But what's even worse is not only are they blind to this reality, they're also encouraging others, the crowds, to be the same. The crowds are watching the, the Pharisees. I don't know if you ever find yourself in a group of people... Um, I sometimes find myself in church meetings, not when I'm preaching, but maybe in a church service, and, and the preacher might tell a joke, and I have a quick look around to see if everyone's laughing before I start laughing. Just, I like to know uh, what everyone else is doing. And you can imagine the crowds are looking on at the Pharisees, 
saying, what are the Pharisees making of this? And, and there's the Pharisees, and they're saying, by the prince of demons, he drives out demons. That is why Jesus will publicly denounce the Pharisees at the end of his life as blind guides, blind fools, because of their influence on the people. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see that Matthew is highlighting two wrong ways to respond to Jesus, two wrong reactions to have toward Jesus. The first wrong reaction is that of simple astonishment. That's what we see in the crowd. The crowd are marveling at what Jesus is doing. The crowd are murmuring among themselves, We have never seen anything like this in Israel before. But that is as far as it goes for them. They've not committed themselves to Jesus. They're not following Jesus. They're not pledging their allegiance to Jesus. They're they're just astonished. And the same is true today. There are people who can be amazed by Jesus, astonished by Jesus, awestruck by Jesus, but that is as far as it goes. There are people who can be fascinated by Jesus, but they fail to follow Jesus. I don't think anything sums this up better than the story of an interview that Lee Strobel conducted with Charles Templeton. Now, Charles Templeton was a man who helped Billy Graham on his evangelistic crusades back in the 1950s and 60s, but he eventually wandered away from the faith. And toward the end of his life, uh, Lee Strobel conducted an interview with Charles Templeton. And Templeton said about Jesus in the interview, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. And Strobel quietly commented, you sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, Templeton acknowledged, I do care about him. He is the most important thing in my life. And he stammered, and I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. And then he whispered, and I miss him. Perhaps you came here today as someone who is fascinated by Jesus, but you're not following him. You're admiring Jesus, but you've not pledged your allegiance to him. And today I am presenting you with a fresh opportunity to commit yourself to him. But the second wrong reaction to Jesus isn't that of simple astonishment. It is that of settled antagonism. And that is what we see in the Pharisees. They're saying the same thing over and over again. This is their creed. And their creed is very simple. By the prince of demons, he drives out demons. They are not committing themselves to Jesus. They are not giving Jesus their allegiance. They are refusing to follow after Jesus. Their reaction is just one of settled antagonism. And the same can be true today. There are people who can be confronted by Jesus. And they find themselves unable to deny his existence. 
Neither can they deny what he has done. But they still defy him. They still dismiss him. They still resist him. They still reject him. They still refuse to give him their allegiance. They still refuse to follow after him. Their whole bent in life is one of settled antagonism, sustained animosity. Perhaps that's been the experience of someone who's here today. You've been coming along to our church services because you've got a parent or a spouse or a friend who is constantly on your case to come. And you think to yourself, I wish they would just get off my case, so I'm going to come to church just to get them off my case. And what you find is that you find yourself able to sit through the services and you can just about tolerate the singing. And you can just about tolerate the prayers. And you can just about tolerate the reading and even the preaching. And what's more, you even believe it to be true. But that's as far as it goes. Up until now, you have persistently rejected every appeal, every call, every exhortation to follow Jesus and to give him your allegiance. You can get right up to this point where you say, yes, yes, I agree with everything Hugh is saying. But when he starts speaking about following Jesus, I stop short. I will, I will not follow him. I will not give him my allegiance. And today I'm just presenting you with another fresh opportunity to commit yourself to him. Well, this morning Matthew is challenging us regarding our reactions, regarding our responses to Jesus. Matthew is saying we can respond to Jesus with simple astonishment or we can respond to him with settled antagonism. We can can behave in the same way as the crowd or we can behave in the same way as the Pharisees. But neither of these responses, neither of these reactions is adequate. Neither of these responses, neither of these reactions will give us any comfort, any hope in life or in death. But there is another option that is open to us. Please hear me clearly. This is an option that is open to every single person in this room. Whether you are 8 years old or 88 years old. We can bend our knees to the one who is sovereign over demons, sovereign over disease, sovereign over the devil, Sovereign over disorder, sovereign over death. We can offer our sincere allegiance to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, be Lord of me, be God of me. Can I encourage you, friend, today not to leave this building with simple astonishment over Jesus. Don't leave this building with settled antagonism toward Jesus. Can I encourage you to leave this building offering him your sincere allegiance. Let's pray.